Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Add my welcome to Chris's. So thrilled that you're here. Thank you for taking time. Um, we, we so appreciate that you want to gather with us and um, we, we just regard it as an incredible privilege. So we want to steward your time well. Um, over the last five or six weeks, we have been doing our summer series, and as I said this morning, the, uh, the guys and the girls who shared in that summer series have set the bar really high. Uh, they did so well. So a um, little bit intimidated. Um, we've got we to get over the bar that they've set, and I'm starting a new series um, in the church that I've called Watershed Moments. Life is defined by two moments of time, but most of us are probably only aware of one. We are very familiar with what we call chronological time, that linear unfolding of time. We're born, we live, we die, we call it our lifetime. But beyond the time that that defines the parameters of a person's life, there is another kind of time that defines the outcome of that life. And the ancient Hebrews and Greeks probably had a much better grasp of this crucial time than, than we postmoderns do. They had two words for time. Firstly, chronos, from which we do get our word chronological, which is the linear unfolding of time. But they had another word for which we have no English equivalent. It's a word called kairos. And kairos isn't about the length of time. It's about altogether something different. It it refers to the quality or the content of a particular moment in linear time. It's a moment in time that's filled with opportunity, a moment pregnant with eternal significance. In English, though we don't have a word for kairos, we have a phrase, we talk about a watershed moment in our attempt to convey the meaning of that ancient Greek word kairos. A watershed moment is a turning point. It's the exact moment in a person's life that changes their direction, their activity or their situation. A watershed moment is a dividing point from which, from that moment on, everything will be different. So Kairos is a decisive moment. I think William Shakespeare grasped the idea of a Kairos moment when he famously had Brutus say in the play Julius Caesar that there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood lead on to fortune. Omitted all the voyages of their life as bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea we are now afloat and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Plato once commented that a person who missed or evaded that Kairos moment destroyed themselves, which of course is what William Shakespeare has Brutus saying here. The scripture has a number of places where it uses the word Kairos, indicating this crucial moment in time packed with eternal significance. Let me just read you two of many I could read. In Luke chapter 8 verse 13, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower, and he talks about the seed that falls on the rock. And he said, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a Kairos, in a watershed moment of testing, they fall away. And there's that famous passage in Luke chapter 19, verse 44, where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, prophesying about the destruction of the temple, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the Kairos moment. 
You didn't know the time of your visitation. Uh, author Oz Guinness says, before will hardens into fate and choice into might have been, the Kairos hour is the moment when the present is at its greatest intensity and the future is uniquely open to our decision and our action. Truly definitive Kairos moments are those that have the greatest potential to shape the de deepest parts of who we are and uh, what we're becoming. Now, the reality is sometimes we recognize a Kairos moment actually in hindsight. We look back, not aware at the moment, but look back on it and think, my goodness, that was a crucial moment. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, we live life going forward, but we understand it looking backwards. And that's true for lots of us. However, having said that, there are times when we are aware, sometimes painfully aware, that we stand on the cusp of a vital moment that requires a decision that potentially will be momentous in its impact. Um, sometimes you read of a person who has said as a result of a decision that they have made or an action that they've taken, you sometimes hear people say they crossed the Rubicon. Now that idiom, crossing the Rubicon, means to pass a point of no return. It actually refers back to a historical incident where Julius Caesar in BC 49 crossed the river Rubicon and in so doing uh, committed an act of treason, of insurrection. He went on to become the, the Caesar, uh, changing the course of Roman history and possibly even Western civilization. So that phrase, crossing the Rubicon, has come into our language to indicate one of those decisive Kairos moments. So whether you call it a Kairos moment, a watershed moment, or whether you say they crossed the Rubicon, those crucial moments come to all of us. And our response to those moments when they come often is one of incredible ambivalence. We, we just don't know what to do. We, we can be uncertain, indecisive. We've got to make a choice and we don't know what choice to make. The Hebrew language doesn't have a word for ambivalence. The nearest it comes is Elijah's question to the Baal-worshipping Israelites when he asks them, how long will you waver between two opinions? The message says, how long are you going to sit on the fence? That's probably as near as the Hebrew comes. But though the Hebrew doesn't have a word for ambivalence, it has a tune for it. Okay? Let, let me try and explain what I mean. In the synagogues, the scriptures are chanted or sung. They aren't read in the way that we read them. The rabbi or the cantor, who is the song leader, sings the appointed passage. And in the Hebrew script, there is a very rare note called the shalshalet. And it's a small zigzag-like accent mark placed over a word, and it indicates to the rabbi or the cantor how the word should be sung. So there's a an, uh, an illustration, and over the third letter from your left, up above, you see the little squiggly line that kind of looks like a bit of a lightning strike. That's the shall chalet. Now, to explain it and, and how it's sung, I want to show you a very short video clip. Just warning you, it's probably done for children, so it's kind of pitched at a level that made the congregation laugh this morning, but, but you'll get it as we, as we explain it, okay? Hi, welcome back to Torah Trope. Next Torah Trope group, Shall Shell It. Very squiggly looking thing. Personally, I think this is the most fun trope group in the entire Torah, and it only appears four times. 
So, shall show it is actually what's known as an arpeggio, right? And when you sing it, you can't help but smile. It's such great trope. It goes like this. Shall shall it. See, isn't that fun? Let's do it again. Shall shall it. That's the best trope ever. Let's do it again. Shall shall it. All right. Here are the actual four occurrences of shall shall it in the Torah on these exact words, and here are the verses that they appear in. Vai ma ma. Yes. Vai ma ma. And the accent is over here on the second ma. Vai ma ma. <laughs> Onwards. Vai yo mar. Isn't that great? Next one. Vai ma en. Vai ma en. And the last occurrence is Vai yish chat. Vai yish Let's do shall shall it again together because it's just a great trip. Shall shall it. Okay. You get the point, okay? Um, I said to the congregation this morning, I could have sung it myself, but we just don't have the counselors to deal with the kind of trauma that that could possibly cause. But that's the idea. Now, this little Hebrew squiggle, this little accent, as the video said, occurs four times in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when it occurs, it always indicates a person who is in a state of psychological uncertainty. They are ambivalent about a crucial decision, a kairos moment that has come to them, and they're torn by this inner conflict that we call ambivalence. Uh, in each case, as we're going to consider them in this series, an individual is being called on to make a decision that will dramatically affect their future. It's a watershed moment for them. It's a moment when they are going to cross their Rubicon and things will forever be different. Each case has an individual wrestling with alternatives and uh, the, the issue must be resolved by a choice that's not an easy one. In some cases it means letting go of an intensely felt temptation or a deeply held aspiration. So these are moments of high psychological drama of existential crisis. The four occasions occur, or the four individuals that the shall shall it occurs in their lives is Lot in Genesis 19, Eliezer, Abraham's trusted servant in Genesis 24, Joseph in Genesis 39, and Moses in Levitical in Leviticus 8. And my intention is that in this short series we'll look at those four incidents where the shall shall it occurs and unpack why and what it might mean for you and me. I suspect that many of us have faced, will face, uh, or, or have, have in the past faced watershed moments and ambivalence around the decisions of the exact same kind that these four people faced. Think money, sex, and power, because those are what these guys struggle with in those shall shall moments. If 
that might relate to you, then perhaps this series might be a help for you. If those three things don't relate to you, you might like to check your pulse because you could already be dead. I'm going to check, go, go through the four um, incidents in, in the order they occur in the Torah. And the first shalshalet occurs in the life of Lot in Genesis chapter 19. But before we get to Genesis 19, I want to pack in the, the back story. Um, the call of God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he was called by God to leave his uh, dwelling places in the Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that God was going to show him. Some family members went along with him, including his nephew Lot. When they arrive in Canaan, God prospers them, and we read in Genesis chapter 13 that both Abraham and Lot have acquired large flocks and herds of animals. There's not sufficient room for both of them, and the herdsmen begin quarreling over the available pasture land. So they decide that they need to separate. Abraham, the elder of the two, offers Lot the choice of what land he would like to have. And that, by the way, was an act of, mag was a particularly magnanimous act by Abraham. As the senior member of the group, he could have rightfully chosen what he wanted and simply left Lot with the leftovers. But you'll notice that there's no acknowledgement of gratitude on, Abraham, on Lot's part for Abraham's generosity. Not a word of gratitude is mentioned, which I think is a significant insight into the character of this man. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, we have a key verse, which says, Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, like, uh, uh, in the direction of Zoar. Good deal in that verse that's worth commenting on. The first thing that I think of when I said that, when I saw that verse, was William Blake's little verse. It came to mind. He says, This life's dim window of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe an eye when you see with and not through the eyes. Lot looked with his eyes, but not through eyes that were filtered by a value system, that were filtered by convictions. He simply looked through, with his eyes rather than through the eyes with a discerning spirit. He looked and saw the plain where the Jordan River came down into what is called the, door, the Dead Sea, and he, and he noted it's well watered, it's green, it's fertile, and looking with the eyes, he sees a place of significant possibilities. This was a place where he could grow his portfolio, where he could expand his wealth. He was clearly an ambitious man. His uncle Abraham's priorities and values didn't ring true to him. As far as Lot was concerned, Abraham didn't live in the real world. You know, I know about your precious held values and ethics, Uncle Abe, but business is business. I remember talking to a pastor one time and questioning a particular act of his that I thought lacked uh, integrity, and when I, as nicely as I could, challenged him, he simply said to me, Don, this is the real world. And I said to him, it's not my real world, and I'm really sorry it's yours. You can look with the eyes. You have to look through them through a, with a spirit of values and convictions. You know, the Bible tells us on a number of occasions about Abraham, and it says that Abraham's life was marked with tents and altars. Again and again, you find a passage where he arrives at a place. It says he pitches his tent and he builds an altar. Genesis 
12.8 as an example. He moved to the country on the east of Bethel, Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai in the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. His life was marked by tents and altars. In contrast, the scripture describes Lot in this manner. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. Notice no altars mentioned at all. I think the reversed order of the words and the missing word is intended to signal something to us about Lot. It conveys something of his values and priorities and how different they were from Abraham's. For Lot, business comes first, flocks and herds. With family, that's his tents, bringing up the rear and altars don't even enter the consideration. Verse 10 also tells us that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, like the garden of the Lord. And preeminent Hebrew scholar Robert Alter notices this reference to the garden of the Lord and says it's not meant to be some kind of rhetorical flourish by the author of Genesis. It's a deeply significant statement. And he comments, one way or another, we're all trying to get back to the garden. Perhaps some of you, although I doubt it looking around, are old enough to remember the Woodstock Rock Festival and you might also remember the lyrics that Joni Mitchell penned in a song simply entitled Woodstock to celebrate that occasion. And she said, we are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Since man's expulsion from the garden, we live east of Eden in a deep state of insecurity. We no longer know where we stand and who we are, and there's a deep psychological drive in the hearts of each of us to find, establish, and secure an identity. And people try to get back into the garden, as it were, in all kinds of different ways. You hear it in their conversation. If I I could just be more wealthy than I am, I think I would be secure. If I was only married to this person or that person, if I had this job, that salary, another degree, or tenure at the university, if I could just alter my body shape a little less here, a little more there, I'd feel so much more secure. If I could be in that band or this team, maybe I could find that place of security. We, we want identity and security, but we so often look to things that simply can't provide it. And we seek so often in our society to build an identity on sinking sand. In Lot's case, it was on wealth and prominence. And his problem, like so many of ours, is that he wants the garden of the Lord, but he doesn't want the Lord in it. So Lot goes through this process. Firstly, it records that he looks at Sodom with his eyes. Then in Genesis 13, 12, it says he pitches his tent towards Sodom. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 19, it says he sits in the gate of Sodom. That process didn't happen overnight. Sodom was in his heart way before his body was in Sodom. But he goes through a process that unbeknown to him is hollowing out his soul. And Lot, to all intents and purposes, gets on in the world. You know, sitting in the city gates, that's more than simply a place of entry and exit into the city. That was the place where the elders adjudicated legal matters and discussed local affairs. It was a symbol of collective power and authority. Lot had attained a place of influence and prominence. You might be thinking, well, Don, are you suggesting that it's wrong somehow to perhaps be wealthy and have a place of power and influence? And I'd want to say to you, not necessarily so, but I note in Lot's case, there's no sense of divine direction, calling, or purpose. 
In the great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us, by faith Abraham sojourned as a pilgrim dwelling in tents. It does not say by faith Lot sat in the gates of Sodom. Now some people by faith and as a result of God's call do occupy places of influence in the secular city. God sent Joseph to Egypt. He was with Daniel in Babylon. He worked through Esther in Persia. But it's not always the case. Now, we know enough about Lot to concede that he was a believer in Yahweh. He was not a totally godless man. But I suspect that he was like many Christians today who say they were Christians, but, but they've bought in without selling out. They want everything that God has to offer without giving anything up. So we see this process happening in uh, Lot's life. In Genesis 18 and 19, we have two stories of angelic visitations, of supernatural visitations. One to Abraham in Genesis 18, one to Lot in Genesis 19. And the Bible contrasts those two visits, and the, the contrasts are marked and I think deliberate. The three, the Lord and two angels, come to Abraham and they visit him during the day. The two angels come to Lot at night and the implication is that the physical darkness mirrors the moral and spiritual blackness that Lot experiences in Sodom. Abraham sits in his pilgrim tent, Lot sits in the city gates. Abraham is a model host to his visitors, epitomized by his speedy exertion to produce a lavish meal. Lot simply offers his guests bread without yeast, which is bread cooked in a hurry. The angels ask about Abraham's family. Where's Sarah? The angels ask Lot about his family. Do you have any relatives here? Sarah hears the impending message about her pregnancy and laughs. Lot's sons-in-law hear the message of impending judgment and laugh. It's the same Hebrew word. It's a, it's a word that indicates cynical unbelief or even mockery. Sarah repents, Lot's sons-in-law do not. Abraham enters into an eloquent debate and haggle with God about the possibility of sparing the city. Lot is hesitant and bumbling and unable to convince even his married daughters and sons-in-law to leave the city. Abraham pleads with God to spare Sodom on the basis of justice and God's righteous character. Lot pleads with the angels to spare a little town of Zoar simply on the basis of self-interest. Abraham and Lot might have left Ur of Chaldees together, but they have parted ways in much more than simply geography by this stage. As you read Genesis chapter 19, Lot doesn't really come out looking much like a man of faith. He comes out looking more like a bungler, almost buffoon-like. He wants to protect his angelic guests, but in the end, they have to protect him. He tries to save his family, but they think he's jesting. Lot, how can you talk about impending judgment? You are as deeply invested in Sodom as we are. His deeply compromised values have undermined any influence that he might have exercised in his family's life. He's afraid to flee to the mountains, so he asks to go to the little town of Zor. He gets to the little town of Zor, is frightened stiff, and runs to the mountains. He is running backwards and forwards. He's deeply divided. And the key verse and the place where the little shal shalet appears is chapter 19, verse 16. The angels are trying to get him out of the city, and it says, but Lot hesitated and lingered. That's where the shal shalet occurs. The angels grab him by the hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters and, uh, and they thrust him out because of um, Abraham's sake, it says. The Lord was merciful to his Lot's family because of Abraham's sake. 
So over the word translated lingered or hesitated is the shalshalet, that little lightning sign that gives an insight into Lot's profound ambivalence and this incredibly important watershed moment. It's a moment of high psychological drama for, for Lot. The hesitation here penetrates to the very core of his identity because it's at this moment that Lot is forced to answer the ultimate existential question, who am I? He's tried so hard to fit in. He's tried so hard to be one of them. He's tried to build his identity on wealth and prosperity with the hope of gaining influence. If I can just be prosperous enough, people will have to reckon with me. They'll have to acknowledge me. They, they, they'll have to like me. I so want to be liked and accepted. Don't we all? Some of you, again, might be old enough. Again, I, I possibly doubt it, but you might have seen it on YouTube. Um, Sally Field's acknowledgement speech at the, Octors, at the Oscars when she won Best Actress for her role in a movie called Places in the Heart. Um, I mean, most Oscars speeches are cringeworthy, but this was cringeworthy par excellence. And it provided an insight into how deeply insecure she was in spite of her wealth and fame and success. This was her second Oscar. I suspect most of us would never voice what she did, but deep down, I think most of us recognize the same feeling. She said something to the effect that I want to say thank you to you, the Academy. I haven't had an orthodox career, and I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time, the first Oscar, I didn't feel it, but she says, this time I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me. Right now, you like me, and she's waving the Oscar, and people are going, oh, God. This is terrible. Just such a cringeworthy moment, such an expose of the incredibly deep insecurity that plagued a woman of wealth and fame and apparent success. Like Lot, in spite of all his efforts to be long and to be light, the Sodomites actually didn't think he belonged. And, and if you read the story, at one point they, they point the accusing finger at him and they say, he came in here as an alien and now he's acting like a judge. And in that moment, Lot realizes that in spite of his best efforts to belong, he never will. He's an alien, he's an outsider. The angels try and thrust him out. In spite of this, he hesitates. Shall, shall it. He's invested so much. He's worked so hard to be one of them. It's almost impossible to tear himself away. They literally, for the sake of Abraham, manhandle him out of the city and famously say to him and his family, don't look back. Verse 26, of course, records the story that Lot's wife did look back with the result that she became a pillar of salt. Jesus refers to that incident and he says, remember Lot's wife, don't look back. Some Hebrew scholars suggest that Lot's wife was actually a native of Sodom. There's no mention of Lot being married until this point, and some scholars think that um, she, she was in fact a native of, Scot uh, of Sodom, which would explain at least her deep hesitancy. Other scholars have suggested that the phrase, she looked back, is intended to be idiomatic. The idea isn't that she looked back over her shoulder to see what was happening, but it means that she returned to the city and that as a result, she perished with the other inhabitants of Sodom. Um, if the judgment was, as uh, some scholars believe, of some kind of volcanic eruption that God used to destroy the city, then they suggest that the city would be 
lined with pillars of salt in the same way that there were so many calcified bodies found in the streets of Pompeii after the famous eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Whatever, ironically, I find it interesting that before Sodom was destroyed, it was a major, salt was a major product, a major product in, in the trade of the region. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but salt was a fantastically valuable commodity in the ancient world. In fact, the word salt, salarium, is the basis for our word salary. And soldiers in that time had a portion of their wages paid in salt. So salt was an incredibly valuable commodity. And people came all over the, uh, the ancient Near East. They came to Sodom to get, to get salt to trade with the Sodomites for salt. And I, I find it fascinating that in judgment, God often gives us an oversupply of the very thing that we give ourselves to. It's worth a thought. What people revere, they ultimately resemble for either ruin or restoration. So the story tells us that Lot is saved, but saved barely. Like 1 Corinthians, 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 says, like a man escaping through a wall of fire, we would say saved by the skin of his teeth. He got out, but barely. He hesitated, shall chalet. How does that shall chalet moment relate to you and me? Well, you know what? You don't have to be a prophet to connect the dots. Question, where does your identity reside? From where or from what do you derive your security? Sociologists tell us, and uh, they, de they debate endlessly about whether identity is conferred or actually whether it is created. In traditional cultures, maybe Asian or African cultures particularly, it tends to be conferred. Identity is firmly fixed by duty in social and family roles. What makes you a good person is that you fulfill your role as a good son or daughter, mother or father. The expectation of your culture and the social role largely defines you and goes a significant way to create your identity. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got the postmodern West, our culture, where we are marinated in a philosophy that tells us you get to define your identity. You can be anything you want. You construct your identity. You get to determine who you will be. The only apparent constraint is that in doing that you don't hurt somebody else, whatever that means and however it's measured. You know, from a Christian perspective, identity is secured by God's call and his creative touch. It's that that ultimately defines you. You, like Lot, are a stranger and an alien in this world, and as a result, fit comfortably into neither the traditional nor the postmodern liberal approach. To the ones raised in the traditional culture, Jesus says some jarring words. If you love father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. To the postmodern, he's no less jarring when he says, howbeit through the apostle of Paul, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Christianity is dangerously out of step with both ends of the spectrum. In the traditional culture, it's seen as dangerously subversive. In the liberal culture, it's seen as dangerously conservative. We don't fit the spectrum because we're not on it. We are not left or right. Our identity comes from above. It's defined by the call and touch of God on our lives. 
For so many believers, they build poorly in terms of identity. And we, like so many people around us, define our identity by virtue of our salary, our looks, our job, the car we drive, or something else that's no more than sinking sand. And I think that God, in his mercy, brings us to shall shall it moments. Moments when, like Lot, we have to ask the ultimate existential question. Who am I? To whom do I belong? Where do I derive my identity and security from? And in his grace, he will confront you and seek to deliver you from false identities that have not and cannot secure you, but that ultimately will shallow out your souls and make you a shell, like Lot, not knowing whether you're coming or going. Of course, there's no shall shalet in the New Testament because the New Testament is Greek, not Hebrew. But actually, it's not hard to imagine some moments if a shall shalet was Greek where it would be used. You think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and he's seeking eternal life, and Jesus simply says to him, sell all that you've got and follow me. He goes away sadly. A watershed moment. Crossing the Rubicon. Never hear from him again. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me. What am I going to do? He leaves his tax collecting business and follows. The disciples, follow me. They were in the business of fishing. They owned a fishing business. They weren't just simply fishermen employed by somebody else. They were wealthy. They owned the business. Jesus goes by and says, follow me. By the way, when you first read that, you think, what kind of voice must he have had to walk by a bunch of fishermen and say, follow me, and they drop their nets. And What we fail to realize is that before Jesus says that, the first five chapters of John fit. So he spent a considerable amount of time with them. They were at the Canaan wedding where he multiplied the water, he turned water into wine. They were with him when he healed the nobleman's son. They were with him when he, when he challenged the, wo- the woman at Samaria. They had seen some things. But nevertheless, Jesus comes to them and says, follow me, and they have a shall shall let moment. What are we going to do with our wealth? Is it our wealth that defines us? Is it our social status that defines us? Or will we leave it to be a disciple? Some of us who, like Lot, place far too high a value on our salaries, our cars, our homes, our wealth, need to hear again the words of James when he says, prosperity is such a short-lived, it's as short-lived as a wildflower. Don't ever count on it. You know that as soon as the sun rises, pouring down its scorching heat, the flower withers, its petals wilt, and before you know it, that beautiful face is a barren stem. Well, that's a picture of the prosperous life. At the very moment everyone is looking on in admiration, it fails away to nothing. It's sinking sand. God will bring us. He's faithful to bring us to a shall shall let moment where he speaks to us and says, where is your identity residing? On what are you building your security? And maybe this message is one way that God is using to challenge you, to search you. Chris prayed before, Lord, search us. Is there some way of pain, of idolatry, that that resides in me that I'm not even aware of? It's the prayer of Psalm 139, David. Search me, O God. Some of us desperately need to pray that and wait and see what God shows us. 
because the reality is sometimes without even being aware of it, we build false identities that, that, that are sinking sand and that will crash. And maybe because somebody has prayed for you, perhaps a grandparent, perhaps a, perhaps a, a, a mum or a dad, perhaps a relative, they have prayed for you in the same way that Abraham prayed for Lot. And for the sake of Abraham, it says, God sent angelic ministers to, to Lot to get him out of the city, to confront that, that, that false identity and to give him that moment of ambivalence where he has to decide. God in his mercy will do that. You might be thinking, Don, money's not an issue for me. Okay. Um, how about sex? How about power? Because they fit in this business as well. Actually, they're all interrelated. But, but when we come to Eliezer of Damascus, it's, it's an issue of power and, and position. When we come to Joseph in Genesis 39, it's an issue of sex. It's where Potiphar's wife makes her play for Joseph, and it says, Joseph refused. He didn't just simply say, what? You're as ugly as a back end of a bus. Forget it, woman. <laughs> You're not my type. We'll get to this when we come to Genesis 39, but he looked at it and thought, oh my God. Like some of you, he was away from home for the, pretty much the first time in his life in a new culture where the restraints of an old culture were not quite so binding, and he had a moment, and you'll have it too. We'll get there. Father, we thank you for the incredible power of your word. It's a sharp, two-edged sword that cuts to the very marrow of our being to separate and to discern. I thank you, Lord, that though it's sharp and though it's painful sometimes, it is the surgeon's scalpel and not simply the assassin's dagger. And Father, through this series, we invite you to work powerfully by your Holy Spirit to expose our hearts, um, not to shame us and humiliate us, but to shape us and to change us, to make us more like you, to make us a people who will rightly represent you. Father, as these watershed moments come to us, we pray that in your grace and by your power, we will make good choices that will honor you and please you. Father, we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.